Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Merry Christmas, New Covenant. On uh, October 10th of 2010, uh, we got to launch the birth of a brand new baby church in San Diego, California. We were so excited. And then three days later, there was another celebration that took place. Many of you may not be familiar with the date of October 13th of 2010, but that was the date that 33 miners in northern Chile got rescued after being 69 days underground with no hope whatsoever. The only hope they had of survival was this massive pipe that they had put into the ground where they would funnel them food, they would funnel them water, and then eventually, if any of you all got to see the rescue, talk about one of uh, the most heart-wrenching things that we had ever seen, where all 33 of them uh, survived and they brought them up from a half mile underground. But imagine that, 69 days in darkness, just praying uh, that they would be rescued. And you talk about an illustration of where we were at apart from Christ. We were much more than a mile underground. We were in total darkness uh, with no hope. And then Jesus came to the rescue and he rescued us from something far greater um, than actually a collapsed mine. In Jesus' day, they were looking for rescue. The Jews were looking for rescue anywhere that they could get it. In fact, multiple people had popped up in their midst and said, they were the savior. I'm the rescuer. But then every single one of them would get killed, and then they would remain in the grave, and the hopes of those people would be dashed. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus says, I'm here to rescue you. And they're looking at him going, good, you're finally going to get us out from underneath these nasty people that we call the Romans. And they had missed what it was that Jesus came to rescue them from. It's the same thing that he comes to rescue you from today. He comes to rescue you from sin and death. See, we got a problem. All of us sitting in this room have a problem. You know what your biggest problem is? You're going to die. Merry Christmas. I'll see you next week. No, we are all at some point in time, some of us sooner than others, are going to die. But the good news of Jesus is that when he died upon the cross, he began the victory. He defeated, de- or he defeated sin, and then three days later, he defeats death. So the Jews are looking for someone to come and rescue them, just not from sin not from death. That wasn't what was on their mind. What was on their mind was rescue me from the Romans. And they thought that's what Jesus was going to do. Well, when Jesus rides into town, it's a week before his resurrection. It's five days before his crucifixion. And you may know the story pretty well. This is a real life historical event where they are lining the streets and they had cut palm branches and they're waving them at Jesus, something that they would do for a king. And they're recognizing that he had claimed to be a king, just not the type of king that they were looking for. And it goes like this. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna literally means God saves. And so they're looking at Jesus going, God finally sent a rescuer. And he did. Again, they just missed what it was that Jesus came to save them from. You may be sitting in here feeling like you need to be rescued from something right now. I don't know if it's something that's going on in your job, something that's going on in your marriage. Maybe you have an illness or a loved one that has an illness. Maybe you lost a loved one. And in all of this, you're going, who's going to rescue me? And here's the good news. It's Jesus. This is going to sound weird, but it's a blessing to die and not live in our sin forever. It's a blessing to have this soul separated from this body someday because then I get to go and be with Jesus forever, unhindered by tainted creation, unhindered by the creation that has been tainted by the sin that we brought into the world. Well, I'm going to take you to a passage that you may wonder, why in the world are we in Mark chapter 2 today? Go to Mark chapter 2. If you're my Bible scholar sitting in the room, you're going to go, wait a minute, there's no birth narrative in the book of Mark. Mark is the one gospel writer that didn't talk about the birth of Jesus at all, like Matthew and like Luke. And you're right. We have looked at the birth narrative for about four straight weeks. Today, we're actually going to take a look at a passage that tells you why Jesus was born. What did he come for? What did he come to do? He came to rescue you and he came to rescue me. And we're going to take a look at what he came to rescue us from. It's in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be taking a look at 12 verses this afternoon. We're going to take a look at at least three different things that the gospel writer Mark teaches us here. But beginning in the first five verses, it says, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And then Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't think that's what they wanted to hear. They climb up on top of a guy's roof they start digging through the thatch. They start digging through the hay. They start to make a hole in this guy's roof. I'm trying to think, depending on who it was that owned the house, it may have been Peter. Probably thinking, uh, time to get out homeowner's insurance. You just put a hole in my roof. And you got four people dropping their buddy, the paralytic, down through this little pulley system so that they could get to Jesus. And what we're going to take a look at today in our hope of rescue, again, it's, like I said, three different things that the Lord teaches us here about our need for rescue. I want you to note this in the first five verses. Their friends, the friends of this paralytic man, genuinely recognize that Jesus was the only hope of rescue for their paralytic friend. Let me give you a little bit of history and background into the days uh, of the Jews in first century Palestine. At this time when this man was paralyzed, it would have been believed that he had done something wrong that caused him to be cursed to be paralyzed. So if you were deaf or you were blind, or you were paralyzed, or you had leprosy, or some other kind of disease, the Jews typically believed that that was happening to you because of your sin against God. And so this man gets dropped through a hole in the roof, and what they're hoping, based off what they knew about Jesus, is that they, he would heal him. Well, Jesus does. He looks at him and goes, based off the object of your faith, that being me, 
you're good. Your sins are forgiven. And the people looking around are going to be looking at Jesus going, how dare you? There's only one person and one person alone that can forgive sin. That would be God Almighty. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm going to look at them and go, yeah, you finally got something right. But God Almighty in flesh is forgiving this man of his sin. Now, it goes on in verses 6 and 7 to say this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sin. So this is what Jesus is about to do. Just to show you that I have the power to forgive sin, watch this. Now before we go there, let me note that with the religious leaders that are watching all of this, it's almost always the religious and the self-righteous that miss out on their need for rescue. The religious and the self-righteous always seem to be the ones that miss their need for rescue. They think they've got it figured out. Gang, we got a lot of people running around Albuquerque thinking that they don't need Jesus. I will tell you that day in and day out when I go to the gym, that's been my, my big mission field, just talking to people about Jesus. They'll oftentimes look at me and go, no, you know what, I'm good. To which I always have to respond, there is no one good but God alone. In fact, the definition of the word good means morally excellent. I don't think you're morally excellent, my friend. I know I sure am not, and therefore I need to be rescued. But the religious think that they've got it figured out. Listen, it happens in religion all the time. I've heard people say to me, well, you can't really know what's true because there's like 14,000 religions. There's actually literally 14,000 different types of belief systems that are known throughout the world. But I will tell you this, there's actually only two belief systems in the world. One belief system says there's got to be something that I can do to work my way to God. Whether it be through an eightfold path of enlightenment, whether it be just be through a number of good works, trying to get the cosmic scales of justice balanced in my favor so that God will let me in. Those are all part of one religious system. And that's the religious system of works, that I got to be able to do something in order to earn my way to heaven. The only other belief system is the one that says there is absolutely nothing that I can do to appease an all-holy and all-perfect God. In fact, if we're humble and we actually look ourselves in the mirror for who we really are, what do I have to offer the God of the universe? He made everything, owns everything, is self-existent and doesn't need me, so what do I have to give him? So it's not almost prideful, it is completely prideful for me to look at God and say, well, I got something to offer you. I've heard people say it before. I may have even thought it when I was at the age of 21 trusting Christ for the first time. Lord, you sure are blessed because I just became part of your family today. God's not the one who got blessed. It was me. Well, look at verses 8 through 12 as this goes on. Remember what they said in verse 7. Who could speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, let me stop there for just a moment. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking, and now he's about to tell them. You'd think that if they had half a brain, they'd stop and go, we didn't say anything out loud, and yet he knew exactly what we were thinking. And yet undoubtedly, some of these very people were the ones that were there when Jesus was being crucified. Does that tell you anything about the pride and the stubbornness of mankind? And that is the world we live in. I sure am glad that Jesus came and rescued me from myself. I know for the longest time I told Jesus, I don't need you. I don't need this stuff. 
until I came to the stark realization that the only reason that I'm allowed to get up in the morning and take another breath is because Jesus allows me to. Do you know what the only reason you were able to get in your car today and start your car and then drive it and then actually see what was on the road and not run into another person and then actually get out of your car and then have the ability to get up and walk and have your feet move and then sit down in a seat and then your brain process the words that are being spoken right now and then you able to turn those into mental pictures that you can actually see and then actually do something with that and then turn that into the worship of God Almighty is all because God allowed you to today? That's the amazing God that we serve. So in verse 9, he goes on to say this. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? How would you answer that question? This might be weird for you all. We, we can actually interact together. You're allowed to talk in church. This is crazy. Which one's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to a paralytic person, get up and walk? We're divided. I like this. This is fun. All those that say sins are forgiven move to this side of... Just kidding. You don't have to. So Jesus is asking a question, which one's easier? We would say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because anyone could say that. But which one is actually easier to have happen? Well, Jesus is going to answer it for us. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let me take you back to history. What did the Jews believe about why this man was paralyzed? He sinned. He was in sin. Jesus looks at this man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. The guy and his friends and probably everybody there is going, yeah, that's great. Anybody can say that. But the guy wants to walk. And Jesus is saying, don't miss this. It's more important for your sins to be forgiven so that when you do die, you're going to spend eternity in heaven with me, not eternity in hell separated from me. So therefore, your sins being forgiven are way more important. So to show you that I actually have the ability to do that which is more important Okay, go ahead and get up and walk. Now, remember, they equated his, his issue with sin. If Jesus now tells this man to get up and walk and the guy gets up and walks, guess what else he said is absolutely true? All of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Please don't miss how important this is. We get really wrapped up in the baby in the manger and a lot of the other things that happen at Christmas time, but if we don't recognize why it is that Jesus came as a baby in the manger, then we miss the whole point in Christmas. And why did Jesus come as a baby in a manger? To rescue you and to rescue me from something far worse than the Romans, something far worse than paralysis. He came and he rescued us. See, Jesus has proven that he alone This is your last thing for the afternoon. Jesus has proven that he alone has the ability to rescue us. Now, I will tell you what my greatest objection was in coming to Christ. That's great. Anybody can say they're a rescuer. Anybody can say that they have come to free us. People speak words all of the time. But then I had some men look at me and say, but Dave, did you know that Jesus is the only person in all of human history that rose himself from the dead. He got up three days later. And that's where I would begin to mock them. Dead people don't get up. Exactly. And that's what makes Jesus so different. But I don't believe any of that stuff. 
And some of you may be sitting here tonight going, I don't believe any of that stuff. Well, let me read to you what the scriptures say, and then let me just give you a little bit of evidence for why you can walk out of here confident in knowing that the Jesus you serve is not just another man, he's not just another guru, he's not just another martyr, but actually God in flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 26, the Apostle Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay, again, so what? So some guy named Paul said that. Keep in mind who Paul was. Paul was a guy named Saul who was either directly or indirectly responsible for the death of thousands of Christians, who has this encounter with Jesus that was so real and so profound that he writes 13 books of the New Testament, approximately uh, a third of the New Testament he writes. And he writes it with power. And you may be saying, that's still not enough. Great, let me just give you a few snippets of what we're going to do on Wednesday nights together in what Steve talked about in our equip course. I'm just going to give you a few snippets of the evidence that we have for Jesus actually rising from the dead. First of all, it's recorded in the Bible. Now again, you may be saying, so what? I don't believe the Bible. I don't think it's any different than the Koran. I don't think it's any different than the Book of Mormon. I don't think it's any different than the Bakhad Vidas. I don't think it's any different than any other holy book. Let me tell you how it's vastly different. It's the only book that's ever been written. It's actually a collection of 66 books that have been written that have no errors, mistakes, or contradictions. Again, I want to go through with you real quick what the Bible is. It is a collection of 66 books it took about 1,530 years to be completed. It had 40 different authors. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It was written by all kinds of different folks coming from all kinds of different backgrounds. And yet, from the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22, not a single error, mistake, or contradiction. I have had people throughout the last 20 years tell me, oh, the Bible's full of, of mistakes and contradictions. Fantastic. Pick it up, start reading it, find me one, and then we'll walk through those together. And I don't say that facetiously. I say it because I would love it if you'd pick up the Bible. And I'd love it if you'd try to find those errors or contradictions because what you will discover is that there are none. In the original manuscripts, the original authors recorded 66 perfect books for us, and there's a reason for that. It wasn't just written by man, but it came from the hand of God. The prophecy that is fulfilled within Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is mind-boggling. Some of you all heard this statistic. It comes from a guy named Josh McDowell. He wrote a great little book called More Than a Carpenter, but he got a hold of a study by a guy by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner who decided with a bunch of colleagues, not Christians, secular and atheistic mathematicians and statisticians got together and wanted to see what the chances were of just eight of Jesus' prophecies being fulfilled by accident. What are the chances that he was accidentally born through Abraham? What are the chances that he was accidentally born through Isaac, through Jacob, 
through the line of Judah, through Jesse, through David? What are the chances those happened by accident? What are the chances that he was accidentally born in Bethlehem? What are the chances that Quirinius just happened to be governor at that time and had a census so that Joseph and Mary had to go 100 miles from Galilee, from Nazareth, all the way down to Jerusalem? What are the chances that those happened? Just eight of them. Well, the chances are 1 in 10 to the 17th power, according to Dr. Peter Stoner and group. Again, what does that mean? To me, that means nothing. So they give us a word picture. Texas. How many of y'all have been to Texas? Who's been to Texas? Texas is a big state. If you've ever driven across Texas, it takes forever. Now, I want you to picture the entire state of Texas covered two feet deep in silver dollars. The entire thing. You can paint one yellow. And you got one shot, blindfolded, to walk across the state of Texas and pick up that one silver dollar that's been painted yellow. That's the chances of eight prophecies by Jesus being fulfilled perfectly. He fulfilled 351 at his first coming. If you're a note taker, jot that down somewhere, and then I want you to do the math. Don't do the math. You'll never figure it out. 351 fulfilled perfectly. Outside sources that hated Jesus recorded the life that he lived, the words that he spoke, and his resurrection from the dead. They equated it to magic because they couldn't figure out how he did what he did, but they recorded it. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian. Tacitus, a Greek historian. The Roman annals. Pliny the Younger, another Roman historian, all recorded the things that Jesus said, did, and his resurrection from the dead. And these were all hostile to Jesus. They hated him. They were glad that he was dead. They even stated so in their own writings. The empty tomb is proof positive that Jesus actually rose from the dead. No body was ever produced, and they knew exactly where he was buried. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Anytime you get a city after your name, it means you're really important. There was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who gave up his tomb so that Jesus could be buried there. They knew right where he was, and yet no body ever appeared. One of my favorites comes from John chapter 20, verse 7, but when the disciples showed up at the empty tomb where Jesus had been laid, do you know what they found? They found the linen cloths that had been wrapped around his body, and then they found the face cloth folded up in eight concentric squares and laid in the corner of the room. If you're stealing a body, you're not going to take the time to fold up the face cloth neatly and set it in the corner. You're ripping things off and you're booking it. So that begs a question. Why in the world is the face cloth that was over Jesus, and understand how they buried people, what they would do is they would wrap them in linens that would almost be like a cast. If you've ever gotten a cast, eventually it hardens. And then they would, in honor of the deceased person, just put a nice veil or cloth over their face. When Jesus rose from the dead, he took his face cloth and he folded it in eight concentric squares, and he left it in the corner on his stone tablet tomb. And if you're wondering why, that goes all the way back to what we would call table fellowship with a king. When a king or a dignitary would come into town, they would finish their meal, and if they were done, they would take the napkin that they were using, they would wad it up, and they would throw it on the table. That told the servants, get over here and take care of my stuff, I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back. If they took the napkin and they folded it in eight concentric squares and laid it on their plate, that meant don't touch anything, I'll be back. Okay, stop for just a moment. It hit some of us. Jesus folds up the face cloth, lays it in the side, and says, don't forget, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm on my way. So what do we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate the first advent. Remember what advent means, coming or arrival. 
But ever since that first advent, we've been looking forward to the second one. I can't wait. Jesus is coming again. The face cloth was folded. Jesus says, be ready. I'm coming. Another piece of evidence. The resurrection. Jesus appeared to at least 500 people, and it was probably a lot more than that because in that day, women and children weren't counted. So we know it wasn't a hallucination. No two people even have the same hallucination. And then the last piece of evidence that we have that Jesus was not only born, lived a perfect life, and then rose again from the dead, but that is the changed lives of the disciples. Many people have died for a leader, but these guys died for a leader that they spent time with as eyewitnesses. So if they were dying, they knew they were dying for a lie. And most sane people wouldn't die for a lie. See, the greatest thing that you and I have, or the greatest thing that you and I need to have is rescue from sin and death. Jesus coming in flesh as God, living a perfect sinless life, dying and then rising again is what we celebrate all wrapped up together in Christmas. Jesus was born, Jesus died, but then he didn't stay dead. That's good news on Christmas Eve. That's good news on Christmas Day, and it's good news every day of the year. And we're going to celebrate that every single day of the year. Now listen, if you're hearing this message, you're still alive. Some of you may be feeling like the paralytic. I have no hope. There's nobody to lower me in a hole through the roof. There's nobody that even cares that I'm paralyzed. I'm speaking metaphorically, but some of you feel like you're paralyzed, like I don't even know what's next. I don't know where my next paycheck is going to come from. I don't know who's going to fix this marriage. I don't know who's going to fix this job crisis that I have. I don't know who's going to fix this sickness that I have. And I can tell you that there is someone that is going to fix all of it. There is coming a day when we are going to be rescued, not only from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but the very presence of sin. Oh, if I haven't told you, we're studying the book of Revelation starting January 8th. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a quick spoiler, spoiler alert, okay? You still have to come back. But in the end, Jesus wins. That's the end of the story. That's what we're celebrating today. That's what we're going to celebrate throughout the new year. That's what we're going to celebrate until Jesus takes us home via death or rapture. We're going to celebrate that Jesus wins. By the way, he's already won. The victory belongs to the Lord. Now we're just waiting to get to recognize it fully when we're with him forever. Amen, church? Can I pray for us? Jesus, thank you for our time to be with you today. Lord, thank you for our time to celebrate who you are. Lord, thank you for the time to celebrate your goodness to us. And we ask now, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us in mighty ways. Lord, we ask that you would use us in ways that are beyond what we could ask or imagine And Lord, we are so thankful that you have done things in our lives that are beyond comprehension. Most importantly, you rescued us from sin and death when we couldn't rescue ourselves. Lord, I pray for my friends that are sitting in this room uh, that, Lord, have yet to trust you. Christmas Eve is a great day to have a birthday. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be speaking to people's hearts today. Lord, I ask that you would continue to remind us that already know you, that, Lord, we have nothing without you. Lord, help us to never think that we're at a point where we've arrived. Help us to never think that we're at a point where we think we've got it all figured out. And if we do, Lord, thank you for loving us enough to discipline us. Lord, we are so thankful that you came to earth as that baby in a manger that we celebrate. But Lord, would you remind us that even as a baby in the manger, 
Lord, you were holding the universe in the palm of your hands. You were still in control and had track of every atom and every molecule in the universe. That, Lord, you already knew a couple thousand years before it happened that we were going to be sitting at New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, worshiping and praising you. Lord, it is mind-boggling to think of who you are and what you're capable of. And Lord, would you remind us of that when we leave this place and we feel like we're in darkness? Lord, would you remind us of that when we feel like those Chilean miners who are just trapped? Lord, remind us that for those that are in Christ, that we are completely free and we're free forever. So Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us this afternoon today. Thank you for the opportunity we have tomorrow to continue to worship with our families who you are. And Lord, we come before you, and right now we recognize you as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords, as Wonderful Counselor, as our Savior, as our Prince of Peace, as God Almighty. It's in your name that we all pray together. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.